0: when you look at reputation it's based upon how you're utilizing your tangible assets in intangible ways there are employees but the question is what is the intangible value of those employees and how much are you in tapping into their brain power and others and so your culture is a major intangible asset in your reputation
1: hello and welcome to zebra talk my name is matt mayer and i'm your host and today i'm in conversation with elliot schreiber Elliot's had a 30 plus year career, working in corporate America, across academia, and more recently in consulting. He's author of the yin and yang of reputation management. And today we're talking about the complexity of modern business life, the importance of being able to manage cross-functionally and how to make sure that we have a reference point against which we can make decisions which have an impact on our reputation. Reputation should be seen as an asset and an opportunity for both value creation as well as risk management. Elliot, welcome to Zebra Talk. Elliot, absolutely fantastic to talk to you again. We met in London talking about the launch of your your new book, the yin and yang of reputation management. And we finally get to have a proper conversation about that just between yeah, the two of us right. that we could share with as many people as possible. Where, where in the world are you today? I happen to be
0: sitting in uh, a beach house in Southern Delaware uh, on the East coast of the US. I'm about a block from the ocean and we can do the very British thing of talking about the weather <laughs> and commiserating on how hot it's been on both sides of the Atlantic. We're like you in uh, averaging 40 and uh we haven't had a break for a while
1: well it's it's hard to have a conversation about societal change and the toughest challenges facing the world without acknowledging that we're both dealing with a warming climate exactly and um, i'm sat in london uh, i suspect it's slightly cooler than where you are but the infrastructure can't cope so uh right. it's uh it's 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 a challenge and, and you know perhaps we'll go full circle in that that conversation I, I wanted to to kick off this deborah talk conversation just i guess picking up on the process of writing your book because when i read the book and and when we've talked about it previously i was struck by you know obviously it's reflective you've had a 30 plus year career working in marketing and brand through to to strategy through to education and consulting there's a lot of rich experience there and i I wondered how much the book was about capturing that experience and looking back on that career and or perhaps how much it was it was forward-looking you you definitely uh, it, it was it was constructed, certainly my reading of the book was it was very proactive. It was about what people should be doing going forward. And I wondered yeah, how that sat for you. Is it backward looking or forward looking for you personally?
0: It was designed to be, as I said in the, the beginning of the book, a legacy piece. Not that I expect to be at the end, but it was sort of capturing a lot that has gone on in my career in academic community, uh, academic background, because I have the kind of unusual and sometimes they call it serpentine background of having been in and out of corporates, consulting academics. And so I bring a lot of that. And I had been urged by my kids, by colleagues and and, uh, others saying, you know, why don't you write a book? And I'd been toying with that for some time and finally I decided that I would take the plunge and spend a year actually putting it all down on paper. But it is forward looking because what I found was a lot of the things that I found with difficulties in companies that I dealt with and not only inside but consulting to companies globally is that they were not doing a lot of things that differently. They thought they were, but they weren't. And so I've always believed that it's great to have description, but prescription is what people are looking for. It's okay, you're complaining. You're telling us what the problem is. Now, do you have any solutions? I suggested a few that have worked for me in the past and also admitted that some of the things that we've tried, particularly in the area of cross-functional teams, have had problems because people don't like to give up their own control. Silos have really become part and parcel of almost every organization, whether it's a law firm or whatever. People say, this is what I do. This is my remit and nothing else. And so when you talk about bringing people together, the synergies, it changes. And so that was the forward-looking, like why things have to change. And also, having taught in business schools at the MBA and executive MBA level, I was really perplexed that the teaching was not much different than when i went through business school and the world has changed a great deal and so this was why the uh forward-looking parts
1: yeah that's really interesting And i'd love to come back to, to two of those themes one one, the, the idea that business education executive education is potentially a generation behind where it needs to be and, and and how we might address that and how how you're thinking about that personally but also this idea of managing cross-functional issues and behavior which i think is at, it's, it's at the heart of how we address some of the challenges that we've, that we've got. They're, they're two good good topics that we can definitely come back to. As you know, at, Zebra, at the Zebra Project, we talk a lot about the the soft infrastructure of business. So contrast that with the hard infrastructure of business, which is perhaps the focus of some of that executive education that we're talking <laughs> about. But we talk a lot about the soft infrastructure of business. And in my mind, that, that soft infrastructure is is essentially the intangible assets that are created by tangible activity, purpose, culture, ethics, creativity—the the, the lifeblood of organisations—that that it's hard to capture on, a, on an Excel spreadsheet. So right. we we talk a lot about about that. When I've looked at your work and we we've, we've talked previously, it's clear that you see reputation as a, a as an asset class in its own own right. That that you see reputation as something that's um, both got risk and opportunity associated with it. And I wondered if you could just you know, talk to us a little bit about, about reputation as an asset class and, and, and what the, the markets are, where that asset class is important.
0: I say in the book, reputation is misunderstood in my mind. Most people think of it as something marketing and PR do. And that leads to a lot of problems because if you are delegating the reputation of your law firm or your company or your university or hospital or whatever to a group of people will only think about it as being creative and getting people influenced to see you in a certain way you've missed the point that reputation really is based more upon what you do than what you say you do and what you say you do should be reinforcing what you do. So what I've defined reputation is a decision by stakeholders, and they're all different, whether they're employees or investors or customers, everyone comes at this differently and they define it differently, but they all have expectations of value. An employee expects certain things when they are hired. Uh, Customers expect certain things, and it's whether or not you've met those expectations of value better than competitors can. And so it really is related to profitability in a sense. So the, tangible, the intangible really becomes tangible because people say, well, how can you measure value? And I say, it's, it's actually very easy. Look at your competitors and see how you're doing in terms of profitability, sales per employee, whatever. Do you have to lower prices to get people to buy your product? If so, versus competitors. It's saying something about your reputation and the value of your reputation. And this actually started when I was working at DuPont many years ago, and I was asked by the chairman of the board to work on strategy as we got into two new what they used to call value added areas, uh, pharmaceuticals and electronics. So when we went about the pharmaceutical area, one of the things that I noticed, I went around and talked to hospital administrators and thinkers, thought leaders in the healthcare area, and one of the things they kept saying is, "You're trying to get in the pharmaceutical area, but you're doing it like a chemical company." And at the time, it believe it or not, the head of our pharmaceutical business had been his last job had been in our fibers business. I reported it back, and so the the executive committee said, "Well." Maybe we ought to start recruiting in the pharmaceutical business. And the great shock to them was that the DuPont name didn't carry much weight in the pharmaceutical business. It did in chemicals. And so I created a, uh, a ratio with our HR department. And what we found was if we went out into the, a university, we could do three interviews to get one great chemical engineer. Top schools because DuPont was known as one of the places you wanted to work if you were a chemical engineer. In pharmaceuticals, it turned out to be between 18 and 20. And so that difference of those interviews is a cost And the cost not only was time, but we had to up the salaries to try to attract those people away from AstraZeneca or Sandoz or any of the other pharmaceutical companies that they would otherwise really want to go to. I define that for our executive committee and board as that's a measure of reputation in that industry. And so we're going to have to understand not how to do more advertising or PR, but we need to understand the expectations of people as from the FDA, from hospitals, from others, and the difficulty they have in understanding why we're in the business and what value we bring. And so when you look at reputation in that way, you very quickly realize that risk to reputation is failing to meet those expectations. We could do an awful lot of things to try to promote our reputation, and it actually could create greater risk. And one perfect example was we had one very energetic fellow in uh, the PR department who decided that to help our image in uh, healthcare, he found out that at our, in our experimental labs, we this is at DuPont, we were experimenting with artificial blood. And he put out a big press release and actually called a press conference unbeknownst to a lot of us and touted all this investment. What happened was we started getting calls from cancer patients, hemophiliacs, everyone saying, "Can we get this artificial blood? We need the." And it turned out that it was at the earliest stages, and it created what I consider risk because it damaged our credibility. We people said, "Well, then why did you hype it?" There is an awful lot of that emphasis in, in reputation that actually people don't realize can actually hurt the reputation of the company as well. When you look at reputation, it's based upon how you're utilizing your tangible assets in intangible ways. There are employees, but the question is, what is the intangible value of those employees and how much are you tapping into their brain power and others? And so your culture is a major intangible asset in your reputation the the way you share knowledge or don't share knowledge is a tremendous asset in your reputation. And so the more people understand how these things are connected, and that's why I called it the yin and yang, the kind of opportunity and risk that comes with making choices in business.
1: The problem seems to arise when there's a, there's a disconnect between the experience and the brand. The brand is is the brand the reputation is often grounded in the experience whether that's the experience in the in the market as a as a customer or a stakeholder in the consumer market customer market or it's the experience of of staff i'm i'm interested in the idea that that reputation is is both an internal and an external risk and opportunity and i and i just wonder if in your you know if in your work you had a sense of of whether organizations were focusing too much in one area or the other externally to the customer markets or internally to talent markets, you know, and where the, the, the focus should be going forward for people who are trying to lead around this idea that the reputation is a valuable asset.
0: One of the things I found when I had both responsibility for uh, global marketing and communication was that the term brand was associated with marketing and only with customers. And it was a direct reflection and that historically was the idea of brand I mean a brand historically became was related to logos I mean it comes from the term to brand I mean you branded your name into a to a, a cat to cattle to say that if it crosses your border it's still mine and that's where the whole concept came from but the most important thing about brand is the other components which are the associations which are related to your the values you have. I mean, the attributes related to and the associations, who you will align with and who you won't align with. Those are all choices. And so I typically say that reputation begins internally, not externally, because the ability to have a good reputation depends also on what we might call brand. And that confuses a lot of people. They say, well, they're very different well we can manage brand in in different ways we can manage the values we can manage the we have choices in that but when every brand sets an expectation you know we always talk about it as performance or or judgment or function as a brand promise but think about when you hire a new attorney you basically are making a promise of of what it's going to be like to work for Taylor Venters. Then when they get into the company, they make a determination of whether or not that brand promise was actually real or not. When we do branding of any sort, and we're realizing brand was not just about customers, it's employees, it's shareholders, it's regulators, or whatever, everyone's looking at the promises you make and those expectations are the basic as i said rep- reputation based on expectations of value that sets the expectations upon which reputation is judged so it's both internal and external it can't be separated there are externalities that everybody talks about but the externalities are internal also you know the glass door is a very well known measure that mit researchers at least have said is the best measure of employee satisfaction they've found because it can't be tampered with by the company. And so when you read, and I know, I don't know a student that I've ever taught that didn't look at Glassdoor before they accepted a job, if they have choices, said, you know, I don't want to work here because look at the things they're telling me. You know, it's from employees and and ex-employees. So all of this stuff has to be looked at. And that's really the difficult, you know, the more difficult things become, the more some executives back away from it and say, oh, it's way too complex. I can't have, all business is complex. You, you look at, you know, internal, external, look at, you spend a lot of time on the R&D of your products, on the manufacturing of your products, the quality of your products and how they're judged by customers. Why aren't you looking at the connectivity between how you're running the, the culture of your organization and what it does to your ability to develop and create and deliver value to your different stakeholders?
1: Yeah, I mean, and at one level, that there is a simplicity in what you've said, which is that it's it's really about the whichever stakeholder group it is, and I think it's important to to define that stakeholder group widely. But whichever stakeholder group it is, it's about the extent to which their their experience lives up to the to the promises that you've made, either either consciously or unconsciously through a range of things, which I think in, includes brand. When 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 we talk about reputation management, my sense is that there's a there's a lot of focus on the negative side right. of that. It's, it's how do we manage reputational damage? How do we deal with crisis, reputational crisis? Is your experience that there's an equal amount of work going on in terms of how we build the right reputation, how we make the right promises? Is that is that a feature of leadership and strategic thinking at the moment, or is that an opportunity?
0: That's a huge opportunity. Aon Insurance does surveys every year. They publish a survey they take about five or 600 executives around the world, board members, executives, and ask them uh, to rank order the risks that they face. Virtually every year, risk to what they call brand and reputation is in the top five or six. And it depends on what's going on. Currency changes, obviously now it's it's the threat of war and and supply chain and everything else but reputation is always there. and When you probe down, Aon probes down, they, they find that executives say it's a risk, but they don't really know how to manage it. And the way they manage it primarily is through crisis management. So when you think about crisis management, you're managing something after the fire has already started and you're trying to save whatever assets are left. And so What companies really need to do, and that's why I've been trying to work with people in the internal audit and enterprise risk management more closely to partner with them to understand how we can help companies understand the the reputational risks that occur and how we can have a better understanding of the risk of culture. As you may know, internal audit and enterprise risk management, by their own admission, do not do a very good job of managing uh, culture. But we also know that if you look at corporate crises and reputation, whether it was Volkswagen or Boeing or any of the other major crises, 70% of those crises were because of internal, as they call them, breakdowns of culture. Well, I don't think they were breakdowns of culture. I think that was the culture and it it ended up causing problems. Um, And so much of that is to look at, uh, one of the things I've been urging people is look at the incentives you give and whether or not those incentives are misaligned with the real action, because people will move toward the incentives and they'll do things of which they're incentivized. If you want to really understand your culture and you want to have what people call a healthy culture, which depends on the kind of business you're in. I mean, a healthy culture in hedge funds is not the same as a healthy culture in in a, in a hospital, obviously. Uh, healthy culture is one that lets you achieve your objectives with the least amount of risk. When you look at it that way, we have to find ways to identify potential risks and bring them to light before they actually metastasize. And so crisis management's really important, but it, it's sort of like saying, well, I'm running a business. I'm going to forego any type of fire prevention management. I'm not going to look at whether or not I have too many plugs on my, my outlets. I'm not going to look at whether or not I have you know papers in places that could catch on fire. All I'm going to do is worry about whether or not the fire department can come in when this place catches fire. It doesn't it wouldn't make any sense. And your insurance bills would go through the roof. I know with a lot of insurance companies, they've been trying to develop a risk reputation risk assessment tool so that they can determine whether or not the insurance of the company should be higher or lower compared to others.
1: Right, which goes to, goes to your you know, how do you value particular risks right. um, yeah. point that you that you made earlier. I mean, I have, I have a I have a viewpoint which may, by admission, may be a Western world service economy viewpoint. But my my view is that we're increasingly seeing external reputation aligning with uh, employer experience. So the the employer brand, employer employee uh, brand experience is 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 reflective of the customer experience and. I think in 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 that world, if that's right, if 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 if, the, if my viewpoint is right, it is I right. think in that world we we're, we're, we're definitely seeing a, a, a much more pressing need for people to align their internal culture, their internal organizational experience with what with the expectation they're trying to set in the customer market, and the, and, and the disconnects that we see in the customer reputation and experience often often come from the from the external experience and. You know, culture, um, organisational behaviour and experience doesn't happen by chance. I mean, you, could, uh, you we we both could cite examples of of organisations where you know all of the efforts gone into the um, the the R and D or it's gone into the product placement and the, and the brand strategy around product, but not around organisational experience. So I so I, I I see that doesn't happen by chance. I guess that that journey starts at the top. It's about structure. It's about governance. It's about leadership and the and the board. In the work that you've been doing, I mean, are you are you starting at that level or are you are you working further down in the organization
0: the big thing right now is everyone's talking about esg to me the most important thing is the g if you go down to governance the core of governance is the ability to make the best decisions on behalf of the organization and its and its stakeholders larger society good decision making the definition of good is a values definition santiago who's the president of IE University in Madrid, wrote a brilliant piece in which he said to executives, you're making choices of values in every decision you make. Every business person makes selective decisions, where to invest, where to divest, how to manage your portfolio. Those are all values decisions based upon where you feel you can create the greatest value. What we have found during the pandemic particularly, external stakeholders are paying a lot more attention to what's going on inside the company. For example, what's being called the great resignation is now being looked at as one of the greatest risks companies have faced. Why? Not only are they losing talent, but they're losing investors because people say, well, if that many employees are leaving this place has got to be in trouble. I know because in my previous executive role, I had the responsibility for the data collection and evaluation of both our employee surveys and our customer surveys. And what we found was that there was a very, very strong correlation between employee and customer satisfaction. If you did in a regression analysis, it was at like 0.8, which meant there was very little variance left in terms of explaining. We didn't know whether or not employees made good customers or good customers made happy employees or whatever, but we knew that there was a tremendous relationship. I went to our board and in, at Nortel and our incentive program was all about financial results. And so we convinced the board to change 50% of our incentive bonuses to reflect customer and employee satisfaction. And the result on our stock price was amazing. Financials are a proxy, you know, at, of what you're doing in other areas. And so we started doing better by customers, which increased our our market share and, and, and other things. And so I say to people, you know, you need to reflect in their example after example that I can I could cite of where companies have found they didn't recognize the connectivity between their internal and external, uh, and it affected their overall reputation and their ability to compete well in the marketplace.
1: It's interesting. I mean, they, they, maybe this brings us back to where we started around around the. Executive education um, and education more generally, but my sense is that you can't present a formulaic approach to how you make those thousands right. of decisions on a weekly basis that that add up to the right behavior. That that's that's actually about the characteristics of the, the the leaders who are involved. I'm interested in your views on on the extent to which we you know we have a we have a system, whether that's the education system or whether that's the contemporary business culture, which is. Too focused on functional development into a leadership role, rather than looking at people's characteristics, their their behaviours, the you know what the military would call the right stuff.
0: Uh, we've had this discussion when I met you in in London, and and I think we're on the same page is that. Yes, you want to hire people for their expertise, but you also want to look into their character. This is often not what boards look look at when they hire a CEO or other officers like the CFO or others. They're not looking at the character, they're looking at what they've done in previous jobs. You know, you can go through whether it's Enron or or WorldCom or any of the companies that have had problems, where had you traced back, you would have found that that person had done some wrong things previously, but because we can't give references other than they worked here between the years, so and so and so and so, and so that just got passed through. And so it really is about the character of the individual leaders, the way they make decisions. And as I said, you know, you have selective decisions. So I usually say to companies, you know, let's talk about your aspiration. What is the what is the aspiration you have for this company? How do you want people to think of you in the marketplace? Do you want them to think that you're the least expensive, you know, you're, you're Walmart, or do you want them to think you're a BMW or a Mercedes. Where, where do you want to play in this marketplace? What's your aspiration? And so once they define that, I start saying, so let's look at all the things that you do now. Are they reflective of your aspiration? And if not, what has to change? And what you usually get down to is a point where somebody says, oh, we can't change that. And I ask, why not? Oh, no, 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 we can't, we, we posit... I go, okay, you want to change your aspiration then? No. Okay. You, you can't have one without the other. I could aspire to be the greatest swimmer in the world, but I'm not going to be just because that's my aspiration. And so it, it really is reflective. And so you, every leader has selective choices and it comes down to the character. Do you worry about your employees or do you think of them as just, well, I'll, I'll find new employees. If they leave, big deal. I've heard that from executives. Yeah, Big deal. There's good people on the market. I'll just replace them. That's a selective choice. You don't think your employees know that? Or my only concern is profits. I don't really care about anything else. And so you're making a statement what you do, but you don't care how you do it. And how you do it is as important as what you do. And that's where people judge you is how you've done it. You know, and once again, if you're a, hedge fund or investment firm, your employees know that this is what it's expected, it's just drive as much cash as you possibly can. And, and, but that's not the way people would expect, you know, a law firm or others. And we can see that in consulting firms where, you know, McKinsey actually advised both the Purdue family, the Purdue Pharmaceuticals and Johnson & Johnson on how to make profits off of opioids. And part of the plan, which was discovered in court, was they actually had a plan for keeping people on opioids and having doctors prescribe more. Well, it's pretty unethical, but as they said, it increased profits. So is is that good? <laughs> Certainly not to me, but it's a uh, that's a choice they made.
1: I mean, I think in the, in the book you talk quite eloquently about this idea that the, the dichotomy between looking after broader stakeholders or looking after shareholder value of profit is a false one. And I, you know, I think it's, it's, it seems to be relatively easy to, to hide behind those being two separate things, but actually the more, the more enlightened approach is to, or, or or the more ambitious leadership objective is to try and manage, is to try and manage across both of those, um, sets of interests. And are you sensing that, that leaders, are interested in that sort of multifaceted approach to what they're trying to achieve, to how they measure value and contribution, or is it still a dichotomy?
0: Well, I think it depends where you are. I think in the UK and the continent, there's a lot more attention to stakeholder value versus shareholder value. The US, there, it's very easy for companies to hide behind what they call Delaware law, mm-hmm. saying that shareholders, but that's not what the company says. You probably know, you know, the business, Delaware business code says that the, the board needs to operate on behalf of the organization. And it doesn't mean that the the organization, you have to go to the, to the belief that, which some people do, that shareholders own the company, that they don't just invest in the company, they own the company. Well, I happen not to believe that because the company, if they only owned it, they don't make the decisions clearly. They just make decisions on proxy issues generally and elect the sh- they, the board members and others. But I think most companies are coming to realize, and the Business Roundtable in 2019 put out a statement, which they called the purpose of a corporation, in which they said companies should operate on behalf of all stakeholders and not just shareholders. That was more talk than reality for a lot of those companies, 181 of them. But they're striving, at least they know that that's what's being expected. What companies are realizing is that the value creation for them does not come only through shareholders. So I ask companies, I say, you know, if a shareholder gives you $1,000, how do you maximize that $1,000? Well, you could put it in the bank, but you maximize it through your ability to get your Employees to develop and, and products and services that customers really value. And so it's your employees and customers that take that thousand dollars and turn it into millions and shareholders benefit. Understand that the real value creators that you have are your employees and your customers and not your shareholders. Not to decry you know the importance of shareholders, but that's where you need to leverage is your your you know, your ability to create value and you, you can't create value other than through employees. There's almost, there's no way and any hopes of AI, it's not, it's not going to replace the ability of a person to deal with a client or customer or whatever, to give them confidence that they're dealing with the right company, and that they're going to keep their promises.
1: I think there's a huge amount of work to be done on on that idea of value and and how we create it and measure it and i I always think about value as a as a kind of 3d thing rather than a 2d 2d thing so it it exists in terms of size and and volume but it also exists in in time and 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 i think our understanding of how value is created and sustained over time is something that business generally is 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 poised to look at more closely particularly when we're looking at a whole range of stakeholders for whom that time frame is it's it's variable It, it, it depends what your perspective is and, and, and where you sit so value creation fascinating topic as far as i'm concerned
0: the fact that for the first time in history i think employees have power and know they have power over organizations that i mean the talented employee i i usually tell people your talented employees know they have infinite possibilities on the outside you're stuck with the worst employees <laughs> because nobody wants them you either you either get rid of them or they just become a drain.
1: <laughs> I think. They, I mean, we talked about the great resignation, but but I, I came across another phrase yesterday, which was um, about quiet quitting, which is people who are doing the bare minimum in their organizations and and, and getting away with it because of changed working arrangements. And I think you know, it goes goes to your point, which is actually, how do you take that thousand dollars and bring to life the human beings that actually can create value from that thousand dollars? And you know we we risk being in a world where we're not putting the infrastructure around that opportunity. But either way it all comes back to people, right? So businesses, right. brands, balance sheets, it's all good stuff, but at the end of the day it's people that bring that value to life uh, and it's people that make Absolutely. an assessment of, of how valuable something is. wrap up shortly but I'm I'm really interested to hear some positive stories because I think you know we talk a lot about the businesses that have got reputation wrong, um, and in the book, you know, there's some right. great examples of, of that. But but who's getting it right? You know, what's what are what are good examples of successful leadership in this domain?
0: Well, I think Lego has been a a star for a long time. They've had they they started as a company, an educational company, and they've stuck to those values and have not strayed from them. They've made some mistakes, but when they've made the mistakes they've corrected them really quickly to go back to the original purpose of the organization we hear about purpose it's really why do you exist and lego has a very clear understanding of why they exist and exactly what they do and, and what they will not do another danish company Novadordisk, has done a tremendous job I sat in a meeting with the former CEO of Nova Nordisk who said, you know, we believe that our mission is to stamp out diabetes, and they make mainly insulin and other diabetic products, stamp out uh, diabetes in our lifetime. And someone said, why would you have a mission that would put your company out of business? And his answer was, what I tell employees is, if we're smart enough to develop the cure for diabetes, imagine what else we could do. And it's, it really is inspirational. I think there are companies that are trying to recover, like Johnson & Johnson. Johnson & Johnson has gotten a black eye in recent years for a lot of different things, but at the core of Johnson & Johnson is this credo that sets its priorities, that shareholders are last customers and employees in the communities come before that. And they've always believed that, as one of their chairmen said, if we do right by our employees, our customers, and our communities, the shareholders will be well served. In all do it transparency, my son works for Johnson & Johnson, so they are able to continue to go back to this touchstone and say, what did we do wrong? Whenever they've erred, they've tried to recover by going back. Clearly, leaders, as you said, leaders have made decisions in the past who led Johnson & Johnson that people kind of said, well, that wasn't very cradle-like. But that's even, you know, if you can say that's not very cradle-like, you have a touchstone. As Bill George, who used to be the the CEO of Medtronis, calls it the true north. You know, where's your true north? And what will you not do? Because deviates too much from where you really believe you belong and and the things, the values that you belong. A number of companies that in, um, I think, Novartis over the years has proved that it's a pharmaceutical company that has some strong values, even to the extent that they built a campus to be attractive to employees because they recognized that they weren't in London or near New York and to go to Basel, Switzerland. I happen to like Basel, but to go to Basel, Switzerland was not going to be someone's first choice rather than going to London or 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 another uh, city of that type. They built a campus that is just beautiful to be kind of a place that people really feel energized and, and wonderful. So all these companies that I've mentioned, what they've done is they've really looked at not only values, but they really pride themselves in their culture. Also know that if they err, which every company is going to make a mistake, I mean, we're all humans, that they have a place to go back to. They have They have somewhere that they can go back and say, Look, Lego was founded on this philosophy, and I think the Danish thing—just good play or something like that. You know, Johnson Johnson, the uh, the credo, which was developed bef- at the time before they actually had public money. They were—it was all that was—they were basically saying to people, to to investors, if you want to invest in our company, this is what we believe in. You know, make the choice which I really would hope companies will start to do, rather than being pushed and pulled by different stakeholders to go back to how do they want to run themselves and if they're, and define the stakeholders that really resonate with the value that they're delivering and part ways at times with people who want them to do things that would pull them away from their mission you know, I, I, you can't please everyone, you know, marketing terms, you know, a target market is a select group within a larger market. And everyone has a target market, you have a target market that you're after and whatever. And so you can choose employees that way. Companies can very clearly say to share, shareholders, this is how we're going to run the company if you're free to invest in other places. And most institutional investors, American Express, and the, you know, the uh, Deutsche Bank, they they'll stay with the company long term. What companies have been bounced around by are these day traders and people who want to flip a stock. The the volatility of stock was never that way twenty years ago. It's just changed a great deal.
1: I couldn't agree more. I mean, the thread that that comes out of everything that you've just said there for me is about having a reference point, and I, you know, o- organizational purpose might be the reference point, culture might be the reference point, ethical or behavior reference point, but. But actually you you need something to come back to either either when you've got no idea what to do or you're doing something and you've got a feeling it's not the right thing or when you're just faced with complexity many of the zebra conversations that we that we have back to a single thing it's actually be conscious about what your reference point is whatever it is and be, and be consistent consistent around that so, so I promised to, to talk a little bit about um, managing cross-functionally, and maybe that's, maybe that's the right or the wrong thing to, to end our conversation on. But I'm, in, I'm interested in your, your kind of summary of, of, of actually, if, if, if you want to be a, a leader who, who is, embodies these principles, how do you, at a practical level, how do you manage reputation cross-functionally to a positive outcome? for whatever stakeholder group that may be?
0: Well, I think we go back to the notion that somehow uh, reputation is not enterprise wide, but we can delegate it to either marketing or PR. And if we go back to the fact that it really is enterprise wide, uh, then the question is, how do we get the information to make those decisions? Now, one of the sessions, the first session that you were good enough to host uh, at your firm in, in London was the one with Una Harper, in which the question, she's a uh, independent director of KPMG and some other companies, uh, whether the board's getting the information they need on strategy, culture, and risk. You could characterize that as decisions that would affect their reputation. Traditionally, what you do if you're a board member is you call on someone Who should be able to give you that information? Maybe the general counsel, maybe the head of PR, maybe you call in the head of risk management or whatever. They give you the best advice they can from the discipline and the way they've been trained. What we've, you know, if you look at the value chain that was developed by Michael Porter at Harvard in 1979, we still operate like that. In which there are silos and they pass off this development from internal materials to selling those materials, and every group adds value until it is ultimately decided by the marketplace whether there's there's value. The world has changed a tremendous amount since 1979, not the least of which was the internet that took all the knowledge that companies thought they possessed that no one else could see and pushed it out into the marketplace. And so we, we have to start thinking of the fact that we are not in a mechanical world, we're in a systems world. And we're connected in ways that we never thought we were before. There isn't a single discipline who could advise you on what you should do in a complex world. And so what I've advocated is that companies do not operate in a in a siloed capacity where everybody has their own system. I mean, I, I operated in like in that and there were people next door to me, executives, I didn't know what they did. I really didn't. I've had situations where I've created cross-functional teams where the first meeting is for them to introduce each other. These are colleagues that sit next to you and what you do and what information you have, because information is power and within silos, they protect that information and don't share it. Robert Eccles, he was at Harvard, he's at, he's at Oxford now, uh, has said that, you know, what happens with silos, they don't share information, they protect that information, not only that drive up risk, but it makes decision making very, very difficult. And so if you could gre- get all those groups working together in a permanent way, when you needed information, you have a perspective that is a perspective of how all these different stakeholders will react both positively and negatively. And so you can make a decision with a lot more confidence that you know who you're going to irritate because every decision in in our world today is going to make some people happy and some people unhappy. You need to make sure in business that you're making the people who really can create value with you as happy as possible and others don't drag you off your reference point, as we say. And so I think the only way to go is this this cross-functional effort. I've put them in place in a couple of companies, and I've had successes and failures. The biggest problem is that no one wants to give up their power within the silo. And I understand that. Having run a a fairly large group, global group of people, if someone said, you know, now you're just going to be part of a cross-functional team, it kind of shakes you at first until you understand the value. Your value to the company is not the value of your function, it's what you can do to add value to the company. And so you can stop defining your value within your narrow scope, whatever discipline that was. Now, we go back to, to business schools. It's exactly how they teach people. You have your finance course, you have your accounting course, and then you have your marketing course and your leadership course and whatever and each one of them teaches you the importance of that one function the biggest producer of business school students historically has always been finance And they get to think like finance people there's nothing wrong with that but if you could take case studies and i had advocated for this but once again faculty don't like to give up their own capabilities for doing things we used to refer to faculty as a group of anarchists sharing a common parking lot take a case study and wouldn't it be great if you could start it let's say in finance and then you pass the same case study to marketing management, and each of them added the value, and students could then see, oh, I now I'm seeing it from a different perspective. You know, They, they don't want to use the same case study, and if they do, they want to teach it only from their own standpoint. Uh, Roger Martin, at uh, when he was at the University of Toronto, the Rotman School, advocated for that, and they'd used it for a while. I don't know if they still are. Roger's retired now, and um, when he was dean, that was his philosophy is have each each function or each department within the business school teach from the same case so that students come out with a management perspective rather than just a business perspective that is within one discipline.
1: Which, you know, which in itself as an approach is reinforces the idea that there are a bunch of different stakeholders in any in any decision or experience whether those are external stakeholders or or in in the case of the silos that we're talking about here internal stakeholders it's it's interesting i mean we've drawn on a number of of examples and, and thoughts from from i guess corporate america both in the book and in this conversation but i the exciting thing for me is the opportunity which i think will be present for many of our leaders to build these things in by design with for for younger, newer, more flexible businesses that are going to be supporting the economy going forward, and I, and I think this idea of of cross building cross functionality by by design in new organisations is something that we would we'll, we'll we'll see a lot more of, and will really take um, take off going going forward. Elliot, thank you for your uh, insights. I think it's been it's been a really interesting conversation, and I. You know, I'm keen to carry on um, the dialogue, which I'm sure we will in different forum, about many of these ideas and, and, and how we can learn from perhaps what goes goes wrong to inform the design of, of, of newer, more progressive or enlightened companies. You, you mentioned a conversation that we'd had earlier in the year, one of three, and I'll signpost that for our listeners. So it was a, a collaboration that Elliot was doing with the Enlightened Enterprise Academy. Uh, which is which is driven by some of the, the issues that we talked about around executive education, uh, which is a, a tripartite series of, of conversations of which of which we picked up on a number of the themes today. So I'll make sure that that's signposted to our listeners. Thanks for your time, Elliot. Great to talk.
0: Oh, well, thank you for having. I I really appreciate it, Matt. I appreciate uh, you hosting those events and and having me on today. And uh, I hope we can continue the dialogue.
1: Great. All right. Well, look after yourself, and we'll talk soon.